By far the most common theory among people in the area in 1974, and even today, is that Funston picked David up as he was walking home on the night of August 14th, sexually assaulted David, and set him on fire to cover up the evidence. If you remember from episode 1, the zipper of David's pants was in the up position, and the medical examiner didn't find any injuries to David's body other than the burns. However, in 1974, rape kits and other sexual assault evaluations weren't as commonplace as they are today, especially because of the absence of current DNA technology. In this episode, I'll be telling you about several people who knew Funston and had varying degrees of interactions and relationships with him. Most of these people were very clearly victims of Funston, and most of them were children. As far as I know, all of these people are still alive, and many still live in the Kansas City area. So for their protection and privacy, I'll be changing all of the names in this episode. While these details are difficult to tell and hear, they may point to Funston and his motive for killing David. And after hearing the following statements, you may wonder, like I do, how Funston was never arrested even if he didn't kill David. I'm Dylan Kingsley, and this is episode 3 of Burn, The Unsolved Murder of David Iman. On August 15th, just one day after David's body was found, and Jack Caperone came forward to share his concerns about Harry Funston with the Metro Squad, police started reaching out to people who knew Funston. The first person they interviewed was a 17-year-old boy named Ronnie. Ronnie was a burglar and an informant for the Jackson County Sheriff's Department, and he was questioned specifically about Funston's activities in 1972. Ronnie said that in 1972, when he was 15 years old, he had gotten in trouble one too many times and was sent to the McCune Home for Boys. The McCune Home for Boys was a residential reform school, and the boys that were sent there were mostly truants or runaways or had committed low-level nonviolent crimes. I don't know why Ronnie was sent to the McCune home, but my guess is burglary since that was his crime of choice. While Ronnie was living at McCune, Funston visited him several times, and he also tried to get Ronnie paroled into his care, but wasn't able to do so. When Ronnie was released from the home, Funston asked him to move in with him and his wife, and Ronnie accepted. At that time, Ronnie began riding with Funston while he was on patrol, and he told police two different stories about riding with Funston. The first story was that Ronnie smoked cigarettes, and he would sometimes lay his cigarette in the ashtray of the patrol car. On more than one occasion, Funston would pick up Ronnie's cigarette and try to put it out on Ronnie's skin. In his statement, he didn't specify whether this was something that Funston did out of anger or if he made it out to be more of a joke, but he did say that it happened more than once. The other story that he told police was that in May 1972, Funston drove Ronnie by an apartment near Lake Tapawingo, and Funston pointed and said, see that apartment there? A man burned to death the other night. He shouldn't have been smoking in bed and then proceeded to laugh maniacally. 
Ronnie said that he couldn't see the humor in this man's death and didn't know why Funston was laughing, and he didn't even know why Funston was telling him about it. Police asked Ronnie if Funston was gay, and Ronnie said that he had never tried anything with him sexually, but that he believed Funston could have been leading up to that. Again, Ronnie was 15 at the time. He was living with Funston. Funston always wanted him to ride with him while he was on patrol, and Funston always tried to loan Ronnie his car and would also give him alcohol. Eventually, Ronnie's stepdad made him move away from Funston's house because he didn't like how Funston acted, and his stepdad even said that Funston had no business having a boy in his house. About a week later, Sheriff Bill Goh from the Cass County Sheriff's Department called the Metro Squad and said that he had a kid in custody at the Cass County Jail in Harrisonville for burglary. He felt that if the Metro Squad brought this kid's friend in and questioned the boys together, they might tell police more than if they were questioned alone. So the Metro Squad picked up this kid named Greg and took him to the Cass County Jail to be questioned with his friend Dean. Dean had been arrested by Funston about two years earlier, and then Funston got him off of the charges. At this time, Dean started going over to Funston's house and riding with him while he was on patrol. Dean said that Funston would regularly put his hand on Dean's leg and just smile at him. And Dean said that Funston never propositioned him for sex, but he knew that if he was willing, Funston would have taken that next step. Funston was always stopping younger boys, and then he would ask Dean about the boys. He also always had boys over at his house, and he would supply them with beer. At some point into knowing Dean, Funston propositioned him to start committing burglaries for him in Raymore. Funston would say that he would take care of Dean because he would be the police officer on duty, and whatever Dean was able to steal in these burglaries, him and Funston would split 50-50. Dean had heard Funston proposition other boys, too, to commit burglaries for him. Dean said that Funston's nickname in Raymore and Belton among the kids was Fagston, and that everybody knew that he was gay. Funston also had a young man who was 18 or 19 named Jack that always rode with him, and all the kids thought that Jack was also gay. Funston worked from 7 p.m. to 3 a.m. However, Dean said it was common knowledge that Funston would get off duty, change into civilian clothes, get his personal vehicle, and ride around stopping young boys and picking them up to ride with him until 5 o'clock in the morning sometimes. Greg, Dean's friend, who was 17 at the time, he added that he also knew Funston was gay, he had been to his house and ridden with him in his patrol car several times, and that was pretty much all that he added to the interview. Police did write in the report that it was clear that Greg wasn't telling the whole story and everything that he knew about Funston. Dean told police that two friends of his, brothers, were also familiar with Funston and that they should question them. So police visited the home of the Demio brothers, who were 14 and 17 at the time. 
they said that they had both been to Funston's house. They both thought that he was gay. And they had both ridden with Funston to Belton and Grandview and had witnessed him stopping young boys. They confirmed what Dean had said about Funston's habit of parking his police car, getting in his personal car, and picking boys up. While the Metro Squad was at the Demio brothers' house, Mrs. Demio, the boy's mom, also talked to police. She said in the last few days that she had talked to Dean and that he had confided in her about a few things. Dean told Mrs. Demio that when he was in ninth grade, a man named Al Pasek from Raymore had started Dean into drinking and that he had also tried to get him to do sexual acts. Dean told Mrs. Demio that he knew that Pasek was friends with Funston. Dean did not tell Mrs. Demio that Funston was there when these things were happening, just that the two men knew each other. Dean had also told Mrs. Demio that Funston had tried to check him out of the Cass County Jail twice just prior to David's murder. Two of Dean's friends had actually robbed Funston's house at some point and had stolen Funston's revolver, his police ID, and a pair of handcuffs. And Funston wanted to check Dean out of the jail so that he could drive him around and tell him who the boys were that broke into his house and where his stuff was. Dean told Mrs. Demio that he was afraid to leave the jail with Funston, and so he refused. Mrs. Demio ended her interview with police by saying that she felt there was a lot more to Dean's story and that he might be willing to tell them if they would get him alone to question him. Later that same day, August 22nd, police called the house of Funston's friend Jack, whose name was given by Dean, and Jack's mother answered the phone. She said that her son was on vacation in Texas, but told them that Jack had become friends with Funston when Funston worked for the Jackson County Sheriff's Department. She said Jack rode with Funston while he was with Jackson County, Cass County, and Raymore PD. Funston and his wife would often visit their house, or she and Jack would visit the Funston's home. She did note that it was strange because any time that she and Jack would go to the Funston's house, Funston would take Jack to the basement and leave the women upstairs all night. She also told police that at one point Funston arranged a date for Jack at the drive-in movie, but Funston ended up making the girl, who was supposed to be Jack's date, sit in the back seat of the car with Funston's wife, and Jack and Funston sat up front. Jack's mom remembered that several times Jack would ask Funston if he could ride with him, and Funston would say, God damn it, Jack, Ronnie's riding with me tonight. And so she said that Ronnie and Jack were always riding with Funston, but they were never allowed to ride with him together. Francis, Jack's mom, ended the phone call by saying that suddenly in the spring of 1974, Jack stopped riding with Funston and stopped wanting to be around him altogether. She then gave the Metro Squad information on how to get in touch with Jack while he was in Texas. So the next day, on August 23rd, police go back to question Dean, hoping that they will get 
more of a story and might get some of the details that he had told Mrs. Demio. Dean told the Metro Squad that when Funston would ask him to commit burglaries, he would tell Dean how to enter the building, but he would commit these burglaries without Funston's knowledge, just with the information that Funston gave him. So Dean gives several examples. One of these places was a meat market, and Funston told him there was a fuse box in the back that Dean needed to shut off the lights and kick in the door so he couldn't be seen from the street. And Funston would be on patrol and watch for him if he saw him committing this burglary. Another example was another meat market type business. Funston told Dean that the back window was unlocked and would be easy to kick in. And Funston was supposed to be watching the building. So he would make sure while he was on patrol that Dean didn't get caught by any other officers. Dean also told police about a chainsaw store that Funston told him he would have to enter the hardware store next door so he wouldn't set the alarm off. And Funston specifically told him not to worry about fingerprints because he would be the one investigating the burglary if anyone found out about it. Funston also told Dean about several houses in Raymore where people might have been out of town and had asked the police department to keep an eye on their house. I want to add that the reason that I knew Funston was with Raymore PD by November 14th, 1973, is because there's an article mentioning Funston coming upon a burglary in progress around 2 a.m., this was at a grocery store, and the two burglars supposedly ran from the back of the supermarket, and Funston fired a shot at them but missed. When other officers arrived at the scene, there was a safe in the parking lot unopened. The burglars had also left their truck at the scene, and the owner of the truck was identified, but the newspaper article did not say the owner's name. So now that I know what I know about Dean, I wonder if this specific incident was him committing this burglary. Back when Caproon talked to Funston's fellow officers, a lot of them said that Funston always said he wanted to catch someone on the inside so that he could kill them legally. And he also said this to Dean. So Dean told police that he was afraid that Funston was trying to set him up, that Funston was giving him the information to break in and then would catch him inside and kill him so that Funston looked good. At the time of this interview, Dean was in jail for burglarizing the chainsaw store, which is one of the businesses that Funston told him how to get into. But Dean denied that Funston knew about this burglary and that he was involved in it in any way. Dean did tell police that Funston had tried to check him out of the jail twice prior to August 13th, but Dean said he knew if he had gone with Funston either of those times that Funston would have done something to him. Apparently, Funston thought Dean was directly involved in breaking into his house or at least knew who did it, and so he really wanted Dean to tell him where his stuff was. And Dean did deny to police being involved in robbing Funston's house, but said that he did know the boys who did it and said he actually stole Funston's revolver back from one of the boys and sold it to another kid for $35. Dean went on to say that Funston always ran with 15 to 19-year-old boys 
and that he always carried around hardcore sex books that he would show the boys. Dean also said that these books, Funston would just leave laying around his house and his daughter could just pick them up at any time. Dean helped Funston clean his patrol car in June of 1974. And at that time, there was a 20-foot piece of rope under the front seat that Funston had Dean move to the back seat. And there was also a one-gallon gas can. The last time that Dean rode in Funston's patrol car was on July 8th, and he saw the rope still in the back seat. He also added that Funston always carried several books of matches in his glove box. Police then reached out to Funston's friend Jack, who was a dispatcher for Jackson County Sheriff's Department. Remember, he was the 18 or 19-year-old that always rode with Funston. Jack said that he had left for Texas on August 15th to visit his dad. In his statement, Jack said that he was visiting Jimmy Sweets, and he called this man his dad. Jimmy Sweets is a former Jackson County Sheriff's deputy. And I have spent months trying to figure out how the two of them were related. I just recently reached out to one of Jimmy Sweet's kids, and she didn't even recognize Jack's name. So this was not his father, and likely was just someone that he had become close to through the Jackson County Sheriff's Department. Police told Jack that they were looking into the murder of David Iman and that they suspected Funston had something to do with it. And Jack immediately said, wait a minute, did you say David Iman? And police said yes, and Jack told them that he remembered Funston stopping David one night and talking to him. He didn't remember which city this happened in or what it was about, but he did specifically remember Funston talking to David. He said this would have been in December 1973 or January of 1974, so about eight or nine months before David was killed. He said that he took notes while he rode with Funston on patrol, and so he would check to see if he had a note about Funston's conversation with David. Police asked Jack if he knew of any fires that happened while he rode with Funston, and Jack said that yes, one time... He and Funston made a stop at a Grain Valley church. Another officer met them there, and this officer and Funston went inside to check around the church, and Funston told Jack to wait in the back. The other officer came out of the church, and Funston came out a few minutes later and told Jack that everything was fine and that they could leave. They left the church, but Funston wouldn't leave the area, according to Jack. And then a few minutes later, Funston said, look, Jack, there's a fire. And Jack said that he thought that it looked more like fog, but Funston insisted that it was definitely a fire. So they drove back to the church and it was completely engulfed in flames. This is another fire that I mentioned in episode two. And this was the church that burned down on the same night just a couple hours before the 26-year-old man and his wife and kids escaped the fire at their mobile home. Jack didn't mention that mobile home fire, so I don't know if he was with Funston or if that fire even had anything to do with Funston. But I think that we can probably assume that while Funston was in that church, he set a fire, and that's why he remained in the area. While police were on the phone with Jack, 
Jack's mom, Frances, called and told police about another friend of Funston and Jack's named Smith. Smith was called in to make a statement about Funston. Smith was a KCPD fingerprint ID tech of some sort, and he was 22 at the time and said that he had known Funston for about four years. He said that he rode with Funston often while he was on patrol midnight to 8 a.m. He did say that as long as he had known Funston, Funston had never talked about any fires with him, but he had seen Funston be violent towards his wife. Since Funston went to Raymore PD, Smith said that he had only seen him a couple times, and police asked why that was, and Smith just said that he was having family troubles and needed to focus on that, and that was the end of his interview. By the 26th of August, so three days later, Jack was back in town from Texas, and he actually reported to the office to speak with detectives. In the report, detectives wrote that Jack appeared to be very nervous. He was sweating profusely through the whole interview, even though they were in an air-conditioned room. He had sunglasses on that he never took off during the interview, and that he avoided eye contact with detectives when they asked him if Funston was gay. He also denied that Funston was gay. Jack then denied some of the statements that he made just three days earlier when he was in Texas and spoke to detectives on the phone. He told police that Funston was his idol and his closest friend, and police wrote in this report that it was the opinion of Francis, Jack's mom, that Funston and Jack were having an affair. I am really bothered by her choice of words, saying that they were having an affair, just because Jack met Funston when he was 14 or 15 years old. So he was a child. And I actually recently spoke to a family member of Jack's who said that Jack had a falling out with his father around that age, 14 or 15, and moved back in with Francis on Lake Tapawingo. And this is when Jack got involved with the Jackson County Sheriff's Department. This is when he started riding with Funston. This family member told me that Jack was a very whiny little kid and that he was kind of timid and would have stayed in a situation that he wasn't necessarily comfortable in. She also told me that she strongly believes that Jack was being groomed by several people within the Jackson County Sheriff's Department and that Frances could have had something to do with that. She was a very political woman and was associated with a lot of the sheriff's deputies at the time. And this family member didn't say that Frances was handing Jack over to the police so that they could abuse him, but just that she may have been more knowledgeable about the situation than she led police to believe in her statements. So Jack was never subjected to a polygraph test. To my knowledge, police never asked him about leaving town the day after David's body was discovered, and they never asked any details about Jimmy Sweets and that not being his father. I have been trying to get in touch with Jack for 
probably over a year now, and he has not returned my calls. But I will say that when I spoke to his family member, she has also not talked to Jack in several years. And so I don't know if he's just someone that doesn't want to be contacted by anyone or if he is specifically avoiding me because I have said in my messages that I would like to speak with him about Harry Funston. This is also the last time that police spoke to Jack, which I find very odd considering the way that he was acting in the interview and, you know, their suspicions that Jack knew more than he was telling them. So about three weeks later, on September 10th, Smith, the KCPD fingerprint tech, was called in again. Police asked him if he knew if Funston was gay, and Smith said that he didn't know, but that Funston had put his hand on his leg before while they were riding together. Smith was given a polygraph test, and this has always been kind of confusing to me, not only because of the timing between Smith's interviews, but also because Jack was never polygraphed. When Smith was given the polygraph test, he passed every question, and the questions were, do you know who killed David Iman? Did you see David Iman being killed? There were a couple of others, and then the last question was, did you furnish Harry Funston with any information about our investigation into the murder of David Iman? And Smith passed the polygraph test. The polygrapher said that there was no indication of deceit at all. So the timing has always kind of made me wonder if maybe Funston said something to police at some point that made them think that someone had tipped him off in some way or given him a bit of information that he wasn't supposed to have. And that's why they called Smith in again to polygraph him. I also want to mention that Linda, David's girlfriend at the time of his death, made a statement to police at one point that two of her friends, boys, had been picked up on Blue Ridge Boulevard by an older man in a brown Ford Torino. And this man had given the boys beer and put his hand on their legs and eventually throughout the car ride had propositioned them for sex. And somehow the boys tricked the man into stopping his car and ran away. Now, I have pictures of one of Funston's personal vehicles. It is a brown Ford Custom. And I also looked up pictures of a brown Ford Torino. And as someone who doesn't know very much about cars, I would absolutely not be able to tell these two vehicles apart, especially if it were at night and especially if I were getting into the car and just briefly riding in this car. So I've often wondered since reading Linda's statement if the man who picked up her friends on Blue Ridge was Funston. One of these boys is now deceased, and I did recently speak to his brother, and his brother had no knowledge of this situation. The other boy is still alive, but I am still attempting to contact him and I'm hoping to see if he could remember more specifics than what Linda said in her statement and also see if he might 
be able to recognize Harry Funston to see if it was the same man that picked him up that night. So I think when you look at all of these stories about Funston, the fires that Caproon suspected him of being involved in, and then the statements of all of these boys who Funston was grooming and may have been sexually abusing, it's easy to think, case closed, why was Funston never arrested? And I feel the same way. I truly do. But there were other suspects in this case, not necessarily people that were suspected by police, so much as people that Wanda, David's mom, suspected may have been involved in David's death. And so just for the sake of objectivity, I want to share with you all of Wanda's theories in the next episode and give you an idea of how frenetic she was in search of answers about David's murder. Police did follow up on a lot of Wanda's theories and information that she brought forth, but no real investigation was ever made into a lot of these people that Wanda suspected of killing David. And I think that's important to know and kind of shows that if Funston is innocent, the police really focused in on him and didn't do much of an investigation into any other leads. And at the same time, if Funston is guilty, why was he allowed to just walk away? If you have any information about David or his murder, or have questions or theories you'd like to share, please email burnthepodcast at gmail.com. You can also contact the KCPD Tips hotline at 816-474-TIPS. Again, that's 816-474-8477. KCPD offers up to a $25,000 reward for tips that lead to an arrest in a homicide case.